We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. kc.com forward slash connect. You can also sign up for our weekly emails, which are going to tell you details about our men's Bible study and our women's retreat and our uh, theology of the Christian life seminar that's coming up and our study through um, the Sermon on the Mount that's coming up as well as other kids events and those types of things. So uh, make sure that you take the opportunity to sign up for that. And then last announcement is this. If you're new with us and you're um, kind of newer at our gathering, someone asked me, does it count if I've been here two years? Does that count as new? And I, to each his own, right? If you can Consider yourself new with us, uh, then we would love to invite you this Thursday night to the Tippins house, uh, and uh, you can get more information about that at the Connect table, but I'll be there. It'll be Dessert Fellowship, and we'd just love to get to spend an hour to an hour and a half um, hanging out together and getting to know each other and hearing stories and, um, and that type of thing. So we'd love to invite you to that uh, Dessert Fellowship at the Tippins this Thursday evening. Stop by the Connect table for more information about that. Hey, in our second service, we're going to uh, be praying, um, seeing, hearing, and praying for the Arcos. Uh, if you're new with us, uh, Francesco and Claudia Arco, are uh, he's a pastor. Uh, she's his wife. They live in northern Italy uh, where they planted a church in uh, what we call, what Acts 29 calls a church in hard places location, uh, meaning they'll never be self-sustaining. Uh, they are in the middle of a very transient, poor, um, gypsy type of colony there in northern Italy on the coast. Uh, our church has been partnering with them for several years now. We've sent a team over to work with them just before COVID happened. We've uh, sent them money each month to support them. They're in town this weekend. They were at one of our members' house last night with some of our members just kind of sharing what the Lord's doing. They're going to be in our second service uh, and just briefly we'll say hello um, to, to everyone that is there. Uh, but we want to pray for them. We're going to pray for them then. So we want to pray for them now as well um, and just the Lord's strength for them. As they're back in the States, we want to pray for them as uh, they're raising money. Also, for their church plant, again, it's, uh, it's a church that will never be self-sustaining um, just because of the place where it's at. And so they're always dependent upon other churches helping them to continue to share the gospel there. So we want to pray for that, and we'll pray for Tyler as he comes to preach for us as well today. And Jesus, we love you. I thank you for your kindness to bring us here to this place this morning, to, to sing songs of your goodness and your faithfulness, to be reminded of our sin and of your salvation. Uh, and Father, now to hear from your word in Acts. Father, would you open our hearts and would you um, soften our minds to be able to receive what you have um, brought to say to us today through your scriptures. Spirit, preach a better sermon than Tyler has prepared and um, speak to our hearts clearly. And we pray today that you'd be with the Arcos. Would you encourage them and bless them in their trip in the United States as they're uh, meeting with partner churches and they're raising support and they're being encouraged? Would you strengthen them and give them endurance to go back and to continue pressing forward with the gospel in a really hard, dark place? Father, would you bring salvation? Would you bring healing? Would you bring um, gospel conversations uh, to the people that they meet with every week? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, as Josh mentioned, uh, my name is Tyler. I am an elder candidate here at the church. And just a little bit about my background here. Um, back on July 7th, 1985, I was just over a week old. And it was on this particular day in my infancy 
that my parents brought me to my very first church service. They're at our small church just outside of Columbus, Ohio. And even though I was obviously unaware of anything that was happening on that day, I still look back on that as one of the single most important things that has ever happened to me. Because ever since then, ever since that day, I have been going back to church. Sunday after Sunday throughout the years, I've never stopped going back. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that the church gave me my reason for living. Because it introduced me to Jesus, the one in whom I live. And every time I thought it would be better to live for something or someone else, it was the church that was there to be the voice of Jesus to me and to call me back to say, come home. Come back to Jesus. And so for this reason and countless others, it would be hard for me to overstate just how much the church matters. God's Word certainly confirms this. It has much to say about the nature and the necessity of the church. And one of the places that it does this is in the passage we're going to look at today. So turn with me to Acts chapter 4. If you have your Bible with you, we'll be toward the end of the chapter, of the fourth chapter of Acts. Now in this section of the book of Acts, like I said, the end of the fourth chapter, and then we'll do the, the beginning of the fifth. In this section, we have an opportunity to consider what it means to be the church. The generosity of the church described here. The unity of the church described here is going to challenge us. They are going to remind us that we are called to be united in Christ. And that we are called to be generous in Him. But I believe that even more fundamentally than that, as as important as that is, as essential as our generosity and our unity are, this passage of Scripture is going to show us that faithful involvement in the local church does not start with us, nor is it sustained by us. Instead, this passage is going to show us that when it comes down to it, the local church is an act of God. And that's really the main idea here. That the church is united and made generous by God's lavish grace. That's what's unique about the local church. God's grace prevailing upon us is what sets us apart from any other institution. It's what sets us apart from any other organization or any other gathering. Because the church is brought together and empowered to give to the mission of God in Christ. And it is all by His grace and His grace alone. No other group of people on the face of the earth can say that. It's only the church. And this, I think, is what makes the idea of church so attractive to so many people. Because who doesn't want to be part of something like that? Who doesn't want to be part of something that is greater and bigger than themselves? Who doesn't want to be part of something that exists for a transcendent purpose? 
That is the longing of every human heart in some way or another. But in some ways, this attractiveness that the local church possesses by the grace of God, this can make things a little bit complicated. right? The church gets really complex really quickly because on one hand, you have people who get who become part of the local church because their hearts have been changed by Jesus Christ. They have been born again to a living hope through Him who was raised from the dead. But then on the other hand, you have people who get involved in the local church for some reason other than Jesus. Maybe they're lonely and they want friendship and human connection. Or maybe for them, they're in their notion of what it means to be a good, moral, upright person, that involves going to church. You go to church on Sundays, right? It's more of a cultural thing. There could be a million reasons for this besides Jesus. And therein lies the complexity. But the Bible does not shy away from warning us about this complexity. Instead, it presses into the complexity by telling us that wherever you find sheep, you will also find goats. Wherever you find wheat, you will also find chaff. Wherever you find true, authentic disciples of Jesus Christ, those who walk according to the Spirit, you will also find counterfeit disciples of Jesus. Those who, even though they appear religious on the surface of things, They're really walking in accordance with the flesh. So you see, there are really two ways to be involved with the local church. right? There's the true way, what I'm going to call this morning the way of grace. And then there's the false way, what I'm going to call the way of death. So we have the way of grace versus the way of death. And that's the outline of my sermon. Point one, if you're taking notes, point one is the way of grace. Point two is the way of death. So let's begin by looking at the first way, the way of grace. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. God's word says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's stop there. Here we have a stunning portrait of the church. It's a portrait of a big-hearted, open-handed church. These believers, they, they show us what genuine unity looks like. They also show us the beauty of a people made generous. And we want to know, what made them this way? What was their secret? Well, as I've already alluded to, it's actually no secret at all. Luke just comes right out and he tells us what made this community what it was. 
Verse 33. It says, great grace was upon them all. In just that simple statement of six words, we learn so much, don't we? Great grace was upon them all. This was a community that was defined by grace. And what kind of grace were they defined by? It says, great grace. This is wave upon wave of God's lavish, empowering grace. It's what Paul was getting at in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. When he says, God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. Think about that for a second. Everything that could be said about this community, every detail that is mentioned about their good works, right? Their unity, their witnessing, their generosity, all of it was a trophy of God's lavish grace. This means that they weren't conjuring these things up in their own strength. They weren't producing them in and of themselves. No, this was something that was being produced in them. And it was being produced by lavish grace. Friends, let's not overlook what this means for us. I want to remind you that God's grace here and now among Emmaus church is no less great. It's not as if time has diminished its greatness in some way. And so we must not see this merely as something that happened a long time ago that doesn't impact us now. We shouldn't view it the same way we view some sort of relic in a museum. Right? You know what you do with a relic. You, you walk up to it. You stand there for a few minutes. You think, that's really interesting. And then you, you walk away and you move on to other things. That's not how we should see this here. This, this portrait of the church is no relic. It is a roadmap showing us the way of grace. It reminds us that, that we, Emmaus Church, has everything it needs to be a big-hearted, open-handed community. We have everything we need to be the kind of community where God's lavish grace defines everything we are and empowers everything we do. Let's think about this for a moment together. Notice a few things with me about the text. Notice what God's grace can do. First, notice the unity here among these believers. God's grace is producing genuine unity in them. Verse 32, we're told that all who believed in Jesus were living as one. It says that they were of one heart, one soul. Verse 33 says that they had all things in common. This is because in the arena of grace, the ground is completely level. So that the highest prince and the lowest pauper, if they are both one with Christ, then they are both one with each other in Christ. And they are called to treat each other as such. Worldly categories vanish. It's like Paul when he explains to the Galatians, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. 
There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. In other words, all those sort of binary categories that the world uses to pit people against each other suddenly evaporate so that people who really have no earthly reason to get along with one another suddenly begin treating each other as family. They treat each other as brothers and sisters. And Paul tells us why. He says, it's because you are all one in Christ. You are all one. Yes, you're, yes who you are in Christ, that defines you now as an individual. But it doesn't just define us as individuals. It defines us collectively. It defines us as a people, as a group. You know, the other day my wife was telling me about an Instagram story that she had come across. It was a video of Christians from Ukraine and Christians from Russia worshiping together. They were singing a song about their oneness in Christ. It was just a a beautiful and profound display of gospel unity. And it got me thinking, you know, human initiatives can't accomplish that. Human initiatives cannot possibly accomplish that. No, that is is supernatural. That is otherworldly because, I mean, these people have every reason to treat each other as sworn enemies. According to the wisdom of this world, they should be at war with each other. They should be taking up arms to kill each other. And yet, here they are, Russians and Ukrainians, here they are worshiping together in the presence and peace of Christ. Here they are singing together. Why? Ephesians 2.13. In His flesh and by His blood, Jesus has toppled the dividing wall that once stood between us. That wall of hostility is gone. And He has created in its place one new man. Friends, that's what happens on the way of grace. Yes, we once hated God. We once hated each other. But Jesus has now made us one by grace. He unites us as brothers and sisters in the household of God. Notice also that His grace makes us a powerful witness. Verse 33, the apostles were publicly testifying about the resurrection of the Lord. And they were doing this, it says, with great power. We saw what this looked like back in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, right? Where where Peter preaches Jesus to the crowds. And we saw it again in chapters 3 and 4 where Peter and John are at the temple and they get an opportunity to preach Jesus first to the multitudes there, but second to the religious leaders there. Remember, this is what Jesus said was going to happen. Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus tells His apostles, tells His disciples that they would receive power from on high to be His witnesses and that this would begin in Jerusalem. Things are unfolding according to the plan of God. And then notice verse 34. God's grace produces a culture of generosity. It says that people were selling their earthly goods. They were selling their possessions, their properties. Verse 36 mentions Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus. 
And it says of Joseph that he was so committed to the way of grace that he had received an apostolic nickname. Barnabas, son of encouragement. Friends, that's the kind of culture we have here. People were were bringing their, their gifts before the apostles so that the resources of the church could be distributed according to need. The poorest among them were taken care of. This church was so knit together in Christ that they opened up their lives to each other in radical ways. They looked out for each other. And Luke says that because of this, there was no needy person among them. All poverty, all material deficit had evaporated from this community. They were fulfilling what was said in Deuteronomy 15.4, where God commands the people of Israel in His law saying, there shall be no poor among you. Here in this church in the book of Acts, this wasn't some theoretical command. This was reality for them. This was lived experience among real people where no one was withholding. No one was stingy. They were not miserly in the way that they related to each other. There wasn't a whiff of greed or self-interest among them. No, the gospel of God's grace in Christ had made them too big-hearted for that. They wanted to give Everything they had to Jesus because they knew that they had received everything in Jesus. Friends, this is what happens when people turn themselves over to the way of grace. They become sons of encouragement. Daughters of encouragement. They shine forth as trophies of what grace can do. But what happens... When people turn themselves over to the way of death. What happens then? The way that Luke is ordering things. The way he's kind of putting this story together. He wants us to ask that question. He's leading us there. He gave us the positive example. That's Barnabas and and the church. The way of grace. Now he's going to give us the negative example. The way of death. And so he introduces us to Ananias. And Sapphira, look with me at verse 1 of chapter 5. We'll read through verse 11. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And to keep back for yourselves part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? How, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. But Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? 
Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. These verses are shocking. They make us with our modern sensibilities, they make us bristle a little bit, don't they? I mean, what's the basic issue here? What went wrong here with Ananias and Sapphira? The basic issue is deception. It's deception. Ananias and Sapphira wanted the church to think that the amount they gave was the full amount, but at the same time, they also wanted to keep some of the money for themselves. It was kind of the classic case of wanting to have your cake and eat it too. And rather than just being honest about the percentage they were giving, they instead chose the manipulation of counterfeit generosity. They chose to deceive because they thought it would make them look good in front of others. This was about appearances, not about substance. It was an act of pure religious pretense. It's like what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He said, you look good on the outside. But on the inside, you are filled with greed and self-indulgence. That's Ananias and Sapphira, friends. Outwardly, they look very pious. They're doing a very spiritual thing, quote-unquote, by bringing an offering to the church. They look really generous. This looks like a good work. But it was only a performance and an empty one at that. Inwardly, as they brought this gift, it was an entirely different story. The intent of their hearts was to conspire, to deceive the spirit of grace. The same spirit who searches the depths of our hearts. The same spirit who knows our every thought. The same Spirit who knows more about us and understands more about us than we know and understand about ourselves. And yet here we have this couple and they are so deluded as to think they can lie to that Spirit about the dollar amount of their sale as if He doesn't know what number is on the check. That's what sin does. It not only causes us to deceive others, As if that weren't bad enough, sin also causes us to deceive ourselves. We delude ourselves into thinking that our underhanded ways will not be found out before the piercing light of the holiness of God. And the result of this is death. It's always death. For this, Ananias and Sapphira were destroyed. They were carried out and buried by church interns. Now, we might look at this and think to ourselves, we may not admit it out loud, but we may think to ourselves, now that's kind of harsh. I mean, I know what Ananias and Sapphira did was, was wrong. I mean, they lied. That's a bad thing to do. 
But death? Really? For a little white lie? Did they, did they really deserve that? It's kind of extreme. Romans 6.23 says no, it's not. It's not extreme. For the wages of sin is death. The problem is not that God is being too extreme here. It's not that God's being harsh or unreasonable. No, the problem is that we do not take sin and its deceitfulness seriously. It is too light a thing in our estimation. Because you see, sin is no mere trifle. It's not a misdemeanor. It's not a minor infraction that we're talking about here. No, sin is cosmic treason. It is saying to the God of the universe, the God who reigns and rules over all things, the God who made you, and who sent His Son to purchase your life with His costly blood. It is saying to that God, you don't matter. You are nothing to me. That's the greatest conceivable offense. Because it makes light, it makes little of the God who is anything but little. Friends, a light view of sin corresponds with a small view of God. And that simply won't do. It won't do at all. <clears throat> no, the only possible consequence for that is death. Anything less than death would fall short of what is good and right and true. Anything else would cause the scales of justice to remain unbalanced. And so for sin, there must be punishment. And that punishment must be fatal. But for you and me, our fate does not need to be the same as that of Ananias and Sapphira. No, because there is one who was willing to die for religious pretenders like us. Jesus, the Lamb of God who was without blemish or spot, He was willing to be sacrificed in our stead. He died in our place. He stood condemned for us. He absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. God's holiness and justice demand a sacrifice. It must be paid. And it will either be paid by the guilty, that's you and me, or it will be paid by the innocent. That's Jesus. It will either happen to you in your own death, or it will happen for you, substitutionally, on your behalf. Which means that Jesus is the only way. He is the only escape from the just, right, and righteous consequence of your sin. So I plead with you today, fall upon the kind arms of Christ. Fall upon Him who is your willing substitute. He really is willing to stand in our place and to take upon Himself the death that we so deserve. And His willingness to do this is grace. It is sheer, unadulterated grace. Jesus does not do this because there is anything inherently lovely in us. And in of ourselves, we are unlovable. Even our best attempts at righteousness 
are as filthy rags because we are too polluted by the way of death. We have no right to look down on Ananias and Sapphira. We have no right to sit atop our perch and sneer at them down below. No, we have no right to do that because we are them. We are them. And yet, what does Jesus do? He looks at us and He loves us. And in His loving kindness, in His tender mercy, He comes and He says, here, let let me take all that is unlovely in you. Let me take that burden, the burden of that, the weight of that. Put that on my shoulders. And in its place, let me give you all that is lovely in me. That's my gift to you. And so receiving that, we find ourselves exiting the way of death and entering the way of grace. Yes, the wages of sin, the wages of our sin, not sin in some theoretical sense. No, it's our sin. The wages of that is death. But the good news is that there is a gift of eternal life. It is a free gift, and it is ours in Jesus for the taking. So if you remember, I began the sermon by talking about my experience of church. I told you what church means to me. Now in light of hearing the glorious gospel of the grace of God, I want to ask you, what does church mean to you? How do you view this entity we call the church? How do you view it? You know, some of us have painful experiences of church. We have been hurt deeply. Rather than loving us, that's the people in this world who are called to love us. Rather than loving us, the church has wounded us. The church has kicked us to the curb, treating us as if we don't matter. And then for others of us, we have wonderful experiences of church. We wouldn't trade our experience for anything else in the world. And both types of experiences, whether they're wonderful or whether they're painful, both of these experiences have a profound effect on the way that we experience church today. But friends, it's important that we are reminded that whatever our experience, whatever our perception of the church, there is one thing that defines the church. And it is the value placed upon it by Jesus through His grace. A value so great that He knew it was worth the cost of His very life. And so, with this in mind, I want to conclude here with an exhortation. My charge to you is give yourself to the church because Jesus gave Himself for the church. Give yourself to the church for no other reason than that Jesus gave Himself. He gave Himself for the church. He purchased it with His own blood. And if He thought that was worth it for Him, it should be worth it for us. This is what separates the way of grace from the way of death. It's what separates the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats. 1 John 3.14 says, this is how we know that we have passed from death into life. 
that we love our brothers and sisters in the church. And anyone who does not have that love, anyone who who doesn't possess that by grace, is still abiding in the way of death. Why? Because on the way of death, people only give to the extent that they will get something in return. Right? You, You give... In order to get, it's a self-serving arrangement. It's, it's quid pro quo. But on the way of grace, people give because everything already has been given to them. There is nothing else to receive. And so the children of God don't barter. Because we know that generosity is the fruit of a heart that has been arrested by God's free grace. Through Jesus, we are free from self-serving calculations. Instead, He releases us to be big-hearted. He releases us to be open-handed with everything we have so that we can freely give of our time, our treasures, and our talents for the good of those around us in the church and for the glory of the Lord of the church. That's what it means to be part of what is happening here at Emmaus. That's what it means to be the church. One of the most significant ways that we have to express this, to express who we are as as the church, is by coming to the Lord's table. We're going to do that now. Because when we come to the table of the Lord... We take up the bread. And when we take that bread by faith, we are reminded that Jesus' body was broken. It was torn apart so that we could be assembled as a family. And when we take up the cup, we take it by faith, being reminded that the blood of Jesus was poured out so that we could be brought in to the family of God. So this bread and this cup is the true nourishment. It's the the true food and true drink that keeps us going on the way of grace. Now, if you're not on the way of grace, if you're not a Christian, we want to ask you to refrain from coming for the simple fact that this meal doesn't mean to you what it means to us. Instead of inviting you to come, we want to plead with you, exit the way of death and join us on the way of grace. You can do that by repenting of your sin and trusting in the name of Jesus. Trusting that He died for you and He lives now. But for those of us who have repented, who have believed, we want to invite you to come. We'll start here in the front of the room. We'll come down this aisle. We'll come across and we'll receive the elements here and then you can take them back to your seat. But we want to invite you. Come and be nourished. Come and receive all the blessings that are for you in Christ on the way of grace. Let me pray for us first, and then you can come. Lord, we do confess that the wages of our sin is death. But Your free gift for us in Jesus is life. It is everlasting life. You so loved the world that You gave Your only Son so that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but would find everlasting life. And so it is in this life that we come today. We come to Your Word. We allow its conviction 
and its comfort to rest upon us. We also come to your table, taking up the elements and being reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus, who promised to be with us, to be present in a special and unique way when we come to the table by faith. And so, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters that you would nourish them here. You have created space. You have saved for them a seat next to you in your presence in order that they might feast with you. And it's a picture of what we will do for all eternity. That's that's the culmination of this life that is for us in Christ. That's, That's where the way of grace is leading us. It is leading us to a table of fellowship with you. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Where we will eat and drink these elements anew with Christ our Lord in the new heavens and the new earth. What a blessed hope that we have in Him. For those who have not trusted in Jesus, I ask that Your Word would be living and active to pierce their hearts, to convict of sin and righteousness and the coming judgment, and to draw them near to the sweetness of Jesus who takes everything that is unlovely in us. He takes it from us And He gives us everything that is lovely in Himself. Lord, I pray that my friends who have not yet believed will receive that this morning. God, we pray all these things in the gracious and perfect name of Jesus. The name that is above every other. We pray it in His name. Amen. Church, let's come to the table. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmaus KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.